The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has announced its proposal for the 2023 Medicare fee schedule. In short, not good for physicians. But don't worry, it probably isn't all doom and gloom. Plus, with the public option going nowhere in Washington, some states are taking matters into their own hands. From Fulcrum Strategies and Flatlining.net, this is the Flatlining Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with us is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? I am excellent, sir. I hope you are as well. I am doing well, and I'm glad that we're back from our uh, kind of unofficial summer break and to bring you more great uh, analysis and discussion here on the Flatlining Podcast. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, uh, the iHeartRadio app, or pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. And you can sign up for our emails as well at flatlining.net. First thing I want to jump in today, Ron, is uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announcement for their 2023 um, fee schedule. And I want you to start by, uh, it's kind of a high amount, and I want you to start by telling us what it is and, and what that might mean for physicians. Yeah, so f- first of all, um, part of what's happening, and it happens every year, is some of the political insanity that, that happens in this country. So basically every year, CMS, um, Medicare, announces what they're going to do to the physician fee schedule for Medicare services. Um, and every year for the past many years, that announcement is for a cut in reimbursement. Now, that cut is not randomly picked. Um, it's formula-based, um, based on some some laws that have been passed that basically say that Medicare has to be neutral, if you will, and it can only go up in expenses by a given amount um, tied to inflation. So you've got these laws that say, well, we can't spend any more money than X. Um, And if it looks like we're going to do that, then you have to cut the reimbursement or the conversion factor to offset that. Um, And so this year it got announced that there's going to be a decrease according to Medicare reimbursement of about 4.4% across the board. And when you look at a decrease like that, that, does that come in is that an average of all of the different specialties or is that more in one and some and less than another? How do they break that down? So this cut would be across the board. If it was allowed to go through every single service would go down by the same amount of money by 4.4% because it's a cut to the conversion factor. Now there's other adjustments that happen that are more specialty or service specific um, but those happen in an entirely different process. That's the process called the ROC, um, which reviews the relativity of the cost of one service to another. So, for example, the ROC will look, review and say, should a total hip replacement really be worth 20 times more than an office visit? Mm-hmm. Or has that gotten easier? Or has the cost of doing it gotten more, more or less? And they adjust the relativity 
across those. Those are very specialty specific, but this cut would be on every single service because it's a cut to the conversion factor. So we talked before about when we, if we were to implement something like Medicare for all, that would, um, in short, put a lot of doctors and hospitals out of business. Mm -hmm. A cut like this to Medicare, how will that affect uh, physicians' decisions to see Medicare patients uh, in general? Well, um, it definitely will have an impact, um, especially in a year where physicians are experiencing, like everybody else, massive inflation. Mm-hmm. You know, their staffing costs and everything are going up. Um, they're having a harder and harder time dealing with this inflation. And so if you take a population of Medicare, which is in most cases other than Medicaid, you know, your worst payer as far as how much money you get for the service you offer right. and cut it further, there are going to be some doctors going, you know what, maybe I'll see less Medicare patients. Maybe I'll open up fewer appointment slots for Medicare. Maybe I won't see them at all. Um, maybe I'll limit or maybe when the new doctor gets added to the practice, I'll have them not see any Medicare. So one of the problems of having any sort of reimbursement cut like this is, you know, if if the government is saying I'm only going to buy, I'm only going to pay you X dollars for your product, some people will say, well, then I don't want to sell you my product. I'll sell it to somebody who will pay more. Right. And it's not an insignificant delta. You know, there are a lot of physicians who make significantly more in that same office visit treating a non-Medicare patient than they do a Medicare patient. Mm-hmm. And as we know with working with Fulcrum Strategies, a lot of uh, our, our clients' contracts are based on Medicare, either a fixed year or a, or a floating year of Medicare. Um, obviously, this for those that are on a current year contract, that's going to mean a 4% cut next year as well, regardless of whatever percentage of Medicare they might be getting. Right, right. And that just adds insult to injury. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if this were to go through, and it's not, it'll get, it'll get changed before the end of the year. It always does. Um, and I can talk about why in a second. But mm-hmm. if this were to go through and your contracts were based on current year Medicare rather than a fixed year, not only would you take a 4% cut on Medicare, you take a 4% cut on Blue Cross and Cigna and United, et cetera. And so imagine a scenario where your costs are going up by 8%, which is what general inflation is right now and your revenue is going down by 4%, um, that's a great way to be out of business. Right. So I guess right before we talk into why this, you don't think this is going to happen, you mentioned that interesting factor that, you know, every the costs have gone up by 8%, but they're cutting it by 4%. When you talk about how these decisions are made, why isn't that taken into account, the rising cost of everything else? Um, the glib answer, and then I'll give you the, the more, right. <laughs> is because the primary goal of every elected official is to remain to remain an elected official. Right. You know? Yeah, that's so true. So if my goal is to continue to be the senator of North Carolina or whatever state and not be the ex-senator, well, then this is what I do. I, I make decisions based on what is politically advantageous, not what logic would detail. So that's a glib answer. Mm-hmm. The real answer is this. Um the, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, does a 10-year deficit projection, okay? Medicare is a huge part of the federal budget. And so the CBO projects out for 10 years what the cost is going to be and therefore projects out how much that's going to drive up the deficit. Well, what Congress did many years ago, and they continue to do, is, well, I could pass a law that says, no, no, I'm not going to let Medicare go up by 4%, 8 10% every year. I'm going to cap it at 
3% a year, mm-hmm. okay? And if the numbers, the actuarial numbers tell me that it really is going to go up higher than that, I'll just reduce reimbursement in, until it gets down to 3%. So once I pass a law to do that, then the CBO has to score it as if that's really going to happen, which reduces the 10-year deficit projection. Now, mm-hmm. right. then what happens, like has happened now, Medicare comes out and says, hey, I got to cut the rates by 4% in order to meet your budgetary requirements. And Congress gets together and says, hmm, we can't let that happen. Every doctor will hate us. And all these doctors in Florida will stop seeing Medicare patients. And I'm the senator from Florida. I don't want to be the ex-senator from Florida. Okay, well, we'll pass a law, but just for this year, that says we're not going to do that this year. And that way it only impacts the budgetary deficit projection for one year. But don't worry, next year, I'm really going to do it. And it becomes almost the political equivalent of the tomorrow diet. You know, tomorrow mm-hmm. I'm going to go yep. on a diet. And tomorrow never comes. Yeah. So they've done this every year for the past, I don't know how many years I can count. And they'll do it again this year. They'll wait till the 11th hour and there will be some gnashing of teeth, but they'll do it. Um, and so this whole, I'm going to control Medicare cost and this, you know, reduction scenario isn't real. It never has been. So, to, so despite the fact that our, our political reality is definitely out of whack from where it has been in the past, you think mm-hmm. even in this midterm year, it's going to they're going to come down to it and they're going to do the same thing that they do every year, which is to, you know, not cut it quite as much as, as what it's being cut at now. Yeah, they're, they'll either neutralize it completely. They may because of inflationary concerns. And it's a it's a um, you know, we're heading into a midterm election cycle. They may actually give a small increase, but it'll be mm-hmm. nominal. And it, what it, happens, and happens every year, even in a situation where you've, you know, a highly divided political party system, is neither party wants to be the one blamed and letting it happen. Right. And so it's like a ticking time bomb. And it's the one thing they can get together and go, well, if this goes off, we're both going to get hurt. Let's go ahead and get and defuse this one, and mm-hmm. then we'll hate each other tomorrow. And the, the, with the last time we saw a significant increase, I guess, would probably have been the 2020 COVID pandemic. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And of course that's a one-off because that's in Mm -hmm. response to everything that was going on in the world uh, at the time. So go ahead. And several years ago, they actually did like a reset. They used to have a different formula and that formula was kind of cumulative and it Mm -hmm. got so silly that I think the worst year, the, the, the formula and the law would have called for something like a 32% cut in pay. Wow. And so they did a whole reset and said, well, and then I think it was called the sustainable growth rate, the SGR, and they converted it to the volume performance standard, the VPS. So they just, it's like declaring bankruptcy and having your credit cards washed away. And then say, okay, right. well, now that we've got rid of that debt, let's start some new debt. Yeah. And so that's mm-hmm. why we're only at 4.4% now. So if we'll say for, I know you think it's not going to happen, but uh, I'm sure there are some, I know the American Medical Association as they should have put out a statement saying that we're not supportive of the, of the reduction. Um, obviously any doctor is not going to be supportive of the reduction at all. What advice would you give to um, a physician who might be a little bit concerned that this is going to severely hurt their practice? Well, two pieces. Um, one is, you know, and we discussed this a little bit earlier is, that's why you want your commercial contracts to not be tied to current year Medicare. Mm-hmm. Because if the government ever loses their mind and lets this happen, you definitely don't want it to be, you know, transmit over to your commercial contracts. So the first advice we give all clients is make sure your current your contracts are based on a fixed year of Medicare, not current year. 
The second advice, and this is good advice in a lot of different scenarios, including this one, is have some contingency planning done. You know, you should right now, practices should be looking and saying, well, how much revenue would I lose if this actually happened? And then the second question is, and how would I handle that? What would I do? Would I stop seeing Medicare? Would I, are there ways that I could limit my Medicare by appointment mm -hmm. slots? Are there things I could do that I would immediately, you know, um, lower my expenses? So for example, a business might say, well, I, I normally do employee raises in January. I normally give about 3%. If this actually happened, I would, I would put those on hold. That's a way I can reduce expenses. Know what levers you can pull. That's just good planning. I'd much rather be in a situation of having a plan for what to do if something happened and never have to do it. it, it right. you know, it's a little bit like you know, um, saying, well, you know, I know what I'm gonna do if a hurricane comes and I've already got the hurricane shutters or and you, you live in the Midwest, a tornado or whatever, mm -hmm. I've got the shelter. Because when it gets there, it's a bad time to start to plan for it. Right. You know? Uh, I'm sure that uh, some people could say that America made that mistake with COVID coming around and having to deal with a global pandemic, but that would be a content that would be content for another program that we're not sure. going to do uh, today. Perhaps we'll do a, a three-year COVID episode next year, as we did uh, this year. I do want to change gears a little bit now and talk about uh, the public option, and this is something that hasn't gotten very far in Washington. Um, it's not well liked by payers or providers. And despite it being one of President Biden's running, you know, policies that he was running on, it hasn't gone anywhere. So some states have been working to take it up in their own hands. Uh, right now, there'll be Washington and Nevada have their own program and Colorado is getting ready to roll out their program. And I want to spend some time today talking about Colorado's public option. Mm -hmm. And I'll just share the summary that I put on on the Friday Pulse check last week, uh, which is that they want to. They, Colorado wants insurance carriers to create an option for and be able to sell it to all of their individuals and small businesses, and they have to be capping premiums. They also have to have an expansive network. And if the carriers can't do this, the state's going to get involved and compel providers and hospitals to accept lower rates in order to bring down, bring down those premiums. Um, obviously, I would think that this is something that's a bad idea. And so, Ron, I want you to just kind of start and explain why we haven't had a public option up until up until this point and why this makes Colorado's option not great. Yeah, so um, first thing to understand is what Colorado is talking about really isn't a public option. Okay, mm -hmm. and, and the public option is originally thought of when the Affordable Care Act was passed and it didn't get in and what Biden ran on is this idea that the government would run an insurance company. As it, and that's why they call it the public option, mm -hmm. that they would have an insurance company, much like they run Medicare, but it wouldn't be an insurance company you would automatically qualify for. Like with Medicare, they would sell premiums to individuals and small employers. The government would collect the premiums. The government would contract the network, if you will, of providers, and they would pay out claims. And it would be an option for you to buy. And they've a lot of people called it GovCare, you know, mm -hmm. um, and they would have marketing and everything. And, and people, individuals, and small groups would buy their insurance company from the federal government. Um, what Colorado's talking about isn't a Colorado GovCare. It's sort of creating that product, but forcing the insurance companies to be the one to sell it and forcing providers into contracting with the insurance companies at prices that would 
fit into their model. So it's a bit different than public option. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, why don't we have a public option? Well, the public option and the problem with the public option is it's not far enough down the sort of Medicare for all strategy to really appeal to the the more what they would call progressive far farther left. And it's too far down that option to to appeal to even the, you know, to definitely the really conservative Republicans, but even some of the more moderate Republicans. So it's, it's almost as weird as it sounds, too much in the middle, and it can't find a base. Mm -hmm. Add to that the fact that the insurance lobby is extremely powerful, and they don't like it. Um, and you've got a, a you know, a, a program or a product that really has a hard time finding a base and anybody to cheer for it. And, you know, since the Democrats control of the Senate is, you know, 50-50 and their control mm -hmm. of the House is tenuous at best, they were never able to get enough votes to really force it through. So when we look at what the what they're calling as the Colorado option, mm -hmm. um, one of the three things that, like I said, it talked about is they have to cap premiums and have an expansive network. Um, those sort of make sense, I suppose. I suppose the price caps would be considered um, not a great idea, but having an expansive network, I think, is generally a good idea for a carrier. Um, but I think the most concerning thing is the idea that the state's going to jump in and try and compel providers to take lower rates so they can bring the premiums down if the insurance companies aren't able to do it themselves. How is it that a state is going to be able to do something like that for their, you know, their Colorado option? Yeah, so, and you're absolutely right. Um, the The problem that I have with the Colorado option is the problem that I think most economists would have is you are trying to force markets to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. You know, you're you're having price controls, you're having mandated participation. Um, you, you know, you're doing a lot of things to force a market to act in a way that it otherwise wouldn't. Any time that that's tried to have been done, it comes out with some really negative side effects. Um, and a lot of those side effects, I don't think, are fully vetted out in this. You know, to the question of how can they force providers into entering these um, these networks, if you will, or contracting with these new public, you know, Colorado option programs. Mm -hmm. um, Basically, there are ways that they could potentially do it that wouldn't run afoul of the Constitution. Now, the, just the idea of saying you must engage in this commerce clearly violates the Commerce Clause. Right. Yep. But what they would probably do is something very similar to what the federal government did years and years ago when they came out with a national highway speed limit. Okay. When the national highway speed limit came out, it clearly violates states' rights. The federal government can't tell the state of Colorado or any other state, you must have a speed limit no higher than X on your highways. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they said, oh, well, no, no, you, you don't get us wrong. It's not that you, don't, you can't do it. It's that if you have a speed limit higher than X, we're not going to give you any federal highway money right. there. Well, and it, it sort of de facto made a federal highway law because everybody needs that highway money. Mm -hmm. What they would probably do here is say to a, uh, you know, a hospital or whatever. Oh, if you don't want a contract, yeah, we're not going to send you any Medicaid business or you can't be um, a provider for the state employees. So there are ways, or if they're, if they're publicly funded like a university or whatever, you don't get any public funding. So they would probably force the issue by turning off financial, um, financial help or, or patients that those 
providers need in order to survive. Um, just like, like I said, like the federal government did with, with highway legislation. Is it possible, do you think, that some providers or, or hospitals would be able to take that hit and say, yeah, screw it, we're not doing it, and, and we'll, we'll take that hit and not see Medicaid patients? There, definitely. And, and this is one of the concerns is where does it become to a breaking point? Where is there a provider group, which is more likely a provider group would be able to do it, but, or a hospital that says, you know what? Um, we've actually run the numbers and we're better off by being less full and not seeing these Medicaid patients than taking this kind of hit because it's not potentially an insignificant hit. I mean, they're talking mm -hmm. about a delta in cost of 15% by 2025. Right. Most hospitals run on a margin of three, 4%. So, you know, do you hit that breaking point and then do, does the state lose access to the hospital for everything you know then do the medicaid patients get you know get the shaft on this or does a provider group say i'm just not doing that anymore people also don't understand that you could also have insurance companies saying you know what i just don't want to do this right now their forcing of insurance companies basically says you must offer this if you offer coverage to individuals or small businesses mm -hmm. Well, for a lot of insurance companies, that's a, a fairly small part of what they offer. And B, a lot of times it's hard to make money on those. So you could take a for-profit insurance company, an Anthem, a Cigna, a United, or whatever, that might say, you know what? Okay, we're done. Another thing people don't understand is an insurance company doesn't even have to offer any commercial or fully insured insurance in a state. They could give up their license and still sell a lot of business because all the large employers that are self-funded don't require a state license. Those are right. federally um, mm -hmm. licensed under ERISA. So what happens if they do something like this and a major insurer goes, then I'm out. I won't offer to any individuals in small business. Now you've just reduced choice by trying to force a market into something it doesn't want to do. I suppose to them, we're, you're facing sort of a, a catch-22 situation where you could have, on the one hand, you could have a, a hospital or provider group saying that we're not going to, you know, we're going to take the cut. Or we could even go back to the Medicare discussion before. We have some mm -hmm. uh, an older physician uh, who may be running a provider group with a bunch of other older physicians, and then they decide we're done. We're just going to retire now and move out. And on the flip side, you've got if they have to bring down, if they have to participate in this program because they need the money for it, it could push uh, rural hospitals um, out just because of the way that they wouldn't be able to take such a cut in order to bring down those premium options. It, it could it could push them out. It could push hospitals or provider groups into cutting costs in areas that damage patient care. Mm -hmm. You know, the hospital cuts its nursing staff. I mean, they say, fine, we got to take this, you know, this reimbursement cut. The only way we can make ends meet is we used to have, you know, five nurses covering four West. Now we have three. Well, you know, is that is somebody going to die up there? Probably not, but it's definitely not going to be the same level of care. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean by any time you push a market into what it isn't otherwise doing, you have these negative side effects. It's, it's interesting. You know, we, we, we've been on a break and largely because, you know, you got married and mm -hmm. I went on vacation and, but I was on vacation in England and Ireland and I was, we were driving somewhere or had somebody driving us somewhere in Ireland and 
um, I was asking a question about their healthcare system, and he said, "Oh, it's the world's, it's the best healthcare system in the world." You know, there's a, a government-run. He goes, mm -hmm. "It's fantastic until you get sick," and he kind of <laughs> joked, and and I was like, "Well, yeah, there's the negative side effects of." Lower reimbursement in a in a government right. run marketplace is they've got it long wait times. Mm -hmm. um, we could have Colorado could have a um, a you know a a side effect of staffing levels in hospitals go down, quality goes down, providers drop out, payers drop out, lower choice. You know um, these are all things that could easily happen because of this. We've talked previously about the Affordable Care Act and how there was provisions in there to keep. Um, lots of people from jumping from their current insurance plan to an affordable care act plan um because it, you know you have to have if your employer offers insurance you can't buy the affordable care act plan uh etc cetera, etc cetera. are there similar go ahead yeah well you you can buy it you just don't get any subsidies right um yes and and it is probably telling that there hasn't been an enormous shift of people into the Affordable Care Act without subsidies. Right. Okay. And, and the reason for that is even the Affordable Care Act plans are allowed to price the product at what the cost is. You know, there, there isn't anything in the Affordable Care Act that says, well, if you're, if medical costs go up by 20%, you can't increase the premiums by 20%. This, the Colorado option, doesn't say that. It says, no, no, you still have to reduce the cost of your product to this artificial level, even if your costs go way up. Mm -hmm. um, that's a, a huge difference. So I mean, I mean to cut you off, but it's no, that um, it's a good, it's a good uh, correction. No, that's, mm -hmm. I appreciate that. I, what, what, the point I was getting at though, is are there, are there provisions in the Colorado option to prevent people from jumping off of their current insurance and switching to a Colorado option plan, which might be cheaper for them or might be cheaper from their business. But on the flip side, because you have more people hopping onto the Colorado option, the insurance carriers have to jack up the premiums for everyone else just to subsidize it. Yeah, and, and um, it's a great question. And the answer is no, there isn't. And in some ways it's almost the opposite. So with the Colorado option, and they had to get a waiver from the federal government in order to do this, and they're mm -hmm. going to get it. The government, yeah. you know, is behind this. They like it. So it's yep. a, it's what's called, I think, a, um, uh, you know, innovation program where you're going to try something new, and the government gives you a waiver from the some of the requirements of the Affordable Care Act. But part of this waiver is that they can only offer it to people who can't get a subsidy from the ASCA. So they're careful not to funnel people off of the ACA. So this is primarily for individuals who make too much money to get the, the ACA um, subsidy or small businesses, okay? Well, I'm a small business and I offer insurance for my employees. If, if this were a cheaper plan because it artificially lowers the cost, I have every incentive to switch Mm -hmm. um, from what I'm currently doing. So, um, if that means that the, you know, the, um, healthy groups, small groups that are offering insurance because they can suddenly go to this, it does harm to the insurance company. They're going to have to charge more for the groups that are left there. Um, so there's actually an incentive for individuals who are making too much income for the subsidy or small businesses to jump into this pool because it will be cheaper. By definition, it almost has to be. And then what does it do, do to the rest of the people who stay in the, you know, in the insurance pool? Do you think it has the possibility of driving um, 
all of the major carriers out of the state of Colorado? Um, no, because of the way Colorado is doing this. Okay. So I think what's likely to happen, and, and this was part of how the bill was negotiated, is the insurance lobby in Colorado was violently opposed to this and said, we will leave the state. And basically what the state did in the, in the negotiations, well, what's wrong? They said, well, you want us to drop 15%, but these hospitals, these doctors won't take a 15% cut and there's no way for us to force them. And that's when the state said, well, how about if we force them? And so given that, I think what's likely to happen is the insurers will stay there. The first year they'll lose money on this product. They'll go to the state and say, see, we, we lose money on it. We're going to go out unless you do this. And then the state is going to strong arm the hospitals and providers. That's when things are going to get interesting. Um, because if they're successful in strong arming the hospitals and the providers, now you've got a delivery system problem. Mm -hmm. um, if, on the other hand, they aren't successful in doing it, then the insurance companies will say, well, you, you, know, you didn't follow through on your promise. We're out. Because the insurance companies really don't care how much they sell the premium of their product for, as long as the premium is more than what their costs are. Right. You know? And I, I suppose that if, if the state does have to intervene, and I'm sure they probably will try at some point, we'll see all sorts of different lawsuits against the state of California, or excuse me, the state of Colorado um, from hospitals uh, and, and provider groups. Yeah, this, I mean, these new, the Washington, the Nevada, and the, the Colorado, they're all brand new laws. They really haven't been implemented yet. Um, they're in that sort of implementation phase. There will definitely be both state and federal constitutional challenges on this. And, and, and I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but forcing someone into, into commerce seems mm -hmm. to me to be a blatant violation of anything constitutional. There was, um, and, and trying to get cute and getting around it by withholding funds or things like that, to me, I, I think that should also be a problem. There's an old, one of the early antitrust cases was the IBM punch card case. And basically what this is back, and this shows how old it is, when adding machines had those card stocks in them and they punched holes in the card stock. And then you put the card stock in a reader and it told you what the answer to the equation was. So that, you know, that's what adding machines looked like back then. And IBM had this thing to where they sold the, um, the, adding machine for a certain amount of money, but there was a requirement you had to, could not buy any other cardstock than theirs. Mm -hmm. And that was deemed to be an antitrust behavior. They're like, oh, come on now. You know, that's just another way of extorting too much money for this product. And to me, I hope the courts would look at it and say, you know, withholding their Medicaid funds, come on now, that's just another way of trying to force somebody into commerce. Right. And the federal constitution doesn't allow that. Mm-hmm. And remember, and I know this is getting more nerdy than most people want to know, that Commerce Clause was what the Affordable Care Act was originally challenged on in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said under the, the uh, individual mandate that said, mm -hmm. if you don't buy insurance, you've got to pay X penalty. And the court basically said, yes, it violates the Commerce Clause. You can't do that, but we're going to allow it because it's really a tax and you can do a tax. Right. Um, so there's going to be a lot of legal challenges to all of this. Do you think uh, it's possible this might end up at the Supreme Court? Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I think um, it's highly likely. Um, Washington and Nevada are a little bit different. They don't have the same sort of heavy-handed states going to force a hospital into commerce. Right. I, I think this one definitely 
will go there. And I think the reason why it's not there already is it hasn't happened. You know, the state, mm -hmm. it only says they will, it, they haven't done it yet. So I think the first time they try to do it, um, then it'll, it'll clearly get to the Supreme Court. Right. And, and not that my prediction is any good in Vegas, but with the current makeup of the court, I think it fails. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think they, the current court throws us out in a easily, maybe even like a 7-2 or an 8-1 decision to mm -hmm. say, come on now. Yeah. You know. So I want to put this in the, the context that we've put kind of all of our healthcare discussions in before, and that's in the context of the healthcare equation, where we look at quality, access, and affordability. So for the average patient, how does the Colorado option affect the affordability of their health care? Well, if you're one of the people that are going to be able to fall under it, you know, you're an individual, you're a small employer group or whatever, it will, and this is the attractiveness of it from a political perspective, um, it will make your premiums cheaper and, and not insignificantly so. I mean, if you think about you know, at some point, several years down the road, they want it to be a 15% reduction from where it was in 2021. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money. So, and that's, you know, what politicians like to sell. I lowered the cost of your healthcare by 20% or whatever. So yeah, it's going to make it a lot more affordable. Is it going to make it more affordable for everybody else? It's definitely not going to make it more affordable. It might make it more expensive if this means you just push on the balloon for one area and it goes up somewhere else. Staying on, staying on that affordability uh, uh, point for just a second, do you think that there is enough people that are going to be signing on to the Colorado option that it would be enough to um, swing votes for, for the politicians that, that created this from people who may have been undecided? Enough well, to I, help them win re-election without you know, needing to sweat too much? Um, well, a couple things. First of all, it's and, and I, I think it was you know, Mitt Romney, who made some comment about it's really only a small percentage of people in the middle that decided elections and he got lampooned for it. But he's right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, is this, which is largely, and it's a Democrat governor, largely seen as a Democrat uh, program, is this going to swing people from the hard right? No. Um, is it going to make people from the hard left vote for him even more times? No, they're going to vote for it. It's all that stuff in the middle. So you don't have to swing that many people to swing an election. But I would also say, I don't know that it has to even be people who signed up for it. You know, being right. able yeah. to stand up and say, I lowered the cost of healthcare for Coloradians, or if that's what they're called, by 20% is a pretty powerful thing to say. And mm -hmm. even if you didn't benefit from it, I mean, it, uh, another analogy is, I mean, you know, the Trump tax cuts, when he talked about, you know, I lowered tax cuts for every American. Well, the vast majority of Americans didn't experience a huge tax cut. Right. Um, but it still sounded good. And they said, hey, he lowered my taxes. You mm -hmm. know? Moving on to the next one, let's talk about access. Mm -hmm. Colorado option we talked about uh, could have pretty dire consequences for certain hospitals and provider groups, especially when the state government has to step in and lower their reimbursement. How is that going to affect access uh, for an average Colorado patient's health care? And how is it going to change between a city like Denver or somewhere in a more rural area? Well, and, and, you know, that's one of the things of peering into the crystal ball. Um, we don't know exactly how bad it could get. It could get very bad. And what you need to understand is, you know, if, if somebody said, well, it only reduced access by 10%, well, 
if that 10% includes your hospital in your rural county, that's 100% for you. Right. If that includes your rheumatologist saying, I'm sorry, I just can't see you anymore. Well, that's your rheumatologist and you might not be able to find another one. So talking in sort of macro numbers gets problematic because healthcare is a very localized thing. And if it's my doctor in my hospital, that's all I care about. And I suppose for the people that are in the middle in that regard, what they're going to remember is this plan shut down my hospital and now I need to drive 45 minutes for emergency care. Right. Go ahead. And, and, and that's, you know, that's the, re the real reality of it is, you know, how many people are going to get hurt by this and how does that compare to the people who are going to think it's a good, you know, a good idea whether it helped them or not. Looking also at quality, um, taking aside the possibility of hospital closures, for those that stay open, do you think that they're going to see an increase or reduction in, in quality? That's the one that concerns me the most. Um, and okay. we've talked about this before. There's mm -hmm. people take a lot of shots at the quality of care in this country, and I think inappropriately. Um, we have amazing quality of care in this country and access, um, much better than, than any other country. It's why people fly to this country to have very difficult things like cancer care and mm -hmm. difficult cardiac care and neurosurgical care, et cetera. Um, it's because our quality is is top notch. Our issues around you know, lifespan, et cetera, are not related to the quality of care that gets delivered, but rather the, the way we, our lifestyle. So quality is the one thing that I think we can hold up as being first and foremost. And it's the easiest thing to slowly dissolve because I think more than, than hospitals closing or dropping out, more than likely they're gonna go, well, you know, I gotta have some budget cuts, you know, and they're gonna to say to the head of nursing, find me five nurses that have gotta go, find me this, find me that. They're gonna say, well, maybe we're not gonna, you know, um, provide all these services on weekends. We'll, we'll just have a hospital and we'll wait till Monday to you can get your heart cath or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's gonna be that slow disintegration of quality. And that's really unfortunate because it's gonna be hard to get back. So do you think that then that this is, so if it's gonna be slowly disintegrating like that and it's hard and it's hard to get back, is that gonna be felt worse in the cities or in the rural areas, do you think? Um, I think it's going to be felt worse in the rural areas. Mm -hmm. The rural areas are the areas that are, you know, hanging on by a thread, have smaller margins, are most impacted by this kind of stuff, have limited ability to really deal with significant cost reductions. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's where it's going to, and that's where it's the, you know, the worst place to have it happen right. is in the rural areas. For those hospitals that are labeled as critical access hospitals, do you think that they will have a little bit more bargaining power for not having their, their reimbursement pushed down? Well, and, and, and therein lies one of the problems of having some sort of government edict. Mm -hmm. Who's Who are they going to be bargaining with? Who's going to be the one to decide that rural hospital A gets a little bit more money than rural hospital B than, you know, downtown Denver hospital C? I mean... That's a very difficult thing to do in a subjective way. And our government has not proven, both state and federal, very good at doing that kind of stuff. We're a sort of one size fits all. It's the reason why, and I, you know, I hate to go back to sort of a COVID scenario. It's the reason why when all the, the money that went out, the PPP loans, et cetera, to keep businesses afloat, why we had these anecdotal examples of businesses that didn't need the money who collected millions of dollars. Right. You know, that everybody got angry for. Well, the problem is, how are you going to tell the difference? Mm -hmm. You know, that restaurant that is only still here because of that PPP money needed it. 
and you know the the flip side of these very wealthy businesses or whatever that got the money who didn't need it it's hard to differentiate when you're doing sort of a one-size-all approach and that's what this would be right and then and with the pvp money that's a good example of, of kind of the great equalizer you know there wasn't much discrimination and you know mm-hmm. To the point about certain, um, you know, I, we've been hearing a lot in our local news up here about the the state of Michigan investigating fraud with the PPP mm-hmm. money. I I'd put that in a completely different category, and maybe there should have been a little bit more discrimination. But if you're creating a government program, it has to be available for everyone who meets whatever requirements you set out. Oh, and and, and exactly, and, and the difference and the difference I would draw there is, I can forgive the lack of a lot of strenuous oversight on the PPP money because of how fast it had to happen. Mm-hmm. This was something that in a matter of a few weeks was suddenly catastrophic. So I can go, okay, well, you didn't have time to plan for it. The situation in Colorado is not catastrophic. We're no. creating this problem and we're still not going to have, just because of the nature of the beast, really good sort of ability to differentiate. It's just not what governments do. What do you make of the fact that this is um, coming out now in states like Washington and Nevada and Colorado, yet earlier this year, California wasn't able to get their own, of course, there was single-payer health care for them, but they weren't able to do a health care reform, um, anything close to like what they have right now and what they're getting ready to roll out in Colorado? Well, I think the main difference and the reason why the California thing didn't pass and Colorado and these others did is, you know, what do they say? OPM, other people's money. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what California realized and, and, you know, the governor realized it as did previous governors when this came up is I can't let this pass because I can't get away with the kind of tax increase it would take to finance this because I'm now playing with, you know, California money through tax increases Mm -hmm. and getting back to, and I want to not be a one-term governor. I can't let this happen. What Colorado and the other States have sort of done here is to say, well, this isn't my money. I'm just going to take it out of the pockets of hospitals and doctors. Well, as long as I'm playing with other people's money, yeah, let's rock and roll. Do you think they don't have to have a tax increase for this? Right. Do you think there's enough doctors uh, in in the state of Colorado that would vote out uh, the politicians and the governor because of something like this? Um, no, at least to make a difference. Yeah, no, for two reasons. One, um, doctors haven't been historically very well organized from a, you know, a political, um, activism perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you compare them to, um, let's say gun owners in the NRA, their gun owners are much better organized. The NRA is a much more effective right. lobbying position than the American Medical Society, American Medical Association ever has been. And the other part of the problem is, and it's sort of the nature of who physicians are, most physicians that I know went into medicine to help mankind, and they also um, will have that fit into their political beliefs. And I'm not saying they're all Democrats or all Republicans, but whatever they think is the best approach for helping mankind, if you will, tends to be what they follow. If they're Republican, they think that that's a better approach to elevate everybody. If they're Democrat, they think that's it. And and they sort of put others in front of them and asking them to coalesce around this one issue really puts themselves first Mm -hmm. and their income first. And, and, uh, you know, not every doctor, but the vast majority of doctors, that's a difficult thing for them to do. I, I talk to doctors all the time where I can say, hey, I know how you can make more money just stop seeing Medicaid. 
and they'll say, no, I can't do that. These patients need me. Right. Well, that's putting someone in front of yourself. And that, right. that so I, no, I don't think they're, and I think that's one of the reasons why both at the state and federal level, they can get abused at times is because they know they're not a, a coalesced voting block. Mm-hmm. Now, so if we put the whole healthcare equation together, if we add in our, our, our assessment on quality, which is that it will be disintegrating and difficult to put back together, uh, we add in the access uh, with the fact that we might see some rural hospitals close, and that's going to create problems for people who need emergency carriers in some of those areas. And the, perhaps the only positive is that for some people, at least, it will become more affordable. What's your overall take when you put all three together on the Colorado option? Oh, I, I think it's a horrible thing to do, um, that the, the negatives are going to outweigh the positives. And to be honest with you, I think these artificial reductions in premium costs are not sustainable. Um, you just can't long-term force the price of a product below its cost without it surfacing somewhere else. Right. And we've got a very long-term good example of that, and that's Medicare. You know, mm -hmm. Medicare doesn't cover the cost of providing physician and hospital services, which is why everybody else pays so much more. Um, and Medicare routinely hasn't kept up with the cost. And it's why, you know, on average, and I think on average, like hospital services um, reimbursement for non-Medicare people is like 80% above what Medicare pays and physician services are like 40% above. Well, mm -hmm. that delta is because Medicare isn't paying enough. So if you artificially deflate the price of this group of people, it's going to inflate somewhere else. You didn't mm -hmm. find money. You just pushed it from one pocket to the other. Do you think you could start seeing something like administrative fees tacked on to hospital bills to make up for the cost? Something generic that, you know, people probably wouldn't question? Um, I, you know, I, I think either that or they'll just would, would raise the cost of everything else that they sell. I mean... Mm -hmm. Again, it, and, and that's, you know, hospital pricing is sort of a good example. When people rail about, you know, why does an aspirin cost 10 bucks? It's because all the stuff they provide that either doesn't get reimbursed or gets under reimbursed. They're right. going to get their money somewhere. And if this body of patients isn't going to give it to them, they're just going to overcharge everybody else. It's, you know, an economy, an economist, we call those hidden taxes. Mm -hmm. You know, that healthcare is a hidden tax because as an employer, what I pay for a premium is an additional tax because of I, I have to pay less for Medicare. Mm -hmm. And finally, we want to switch gears for just a second to talk about uh, a story that we had intended to talk about a month ago before we did our kind of unofficial uh, summer break. And that's this report that came out in The Pillar, which is an online publication that focuses on the life of the Catholic Church, about a uh, Catholic health share ministry called Solidarity Health Share. Um, Members told the pillar that uh, in some case that some of them have not been had their claims paid uh, by the health share ministry. And in some cases, it's caused them to lose access to their doctors. And in some cases, some of the doctors have brought in lawsuits against the patients for not having paid uh, the care. So, Ron, I, could you start by just explaining what some of these health share ministries are and how they work in relation to the rest of the health insurance world? Yeah, so what these um, health share entities look like is they sort of serve themselves up as a replacement from insurance. And it, and it acts like, or they, they market themselves as almost an insurance company. Um, 
and basically what they say is, look, you know, when you get a bill, send it to us, we'll pay the bill, we all share in these expenses, you pay in money, which would otherwise be called premiums into a pot, and we all sort of share in expenses. So it's, it's sort of the concept of insurance. The problem is, it's not insurance, and therefore it's not regulated. So there's nothing in the law that says they have to have a certain amount of money in this pot to pay these claims. There's nothing in the law that says they have to pay the claims or pay them within a certain time or pay them at a certain level. And so it's really a fairly risky kind of environment. And the story that came out shows what happens when one of these companies sort of gets a little bit behind, they stop paying. Mm-hmm. And then what happens because, again, unlike an insurance company where they don't have a contract with the provider that says that they won't go after the patient, they won't balance bill, et cetera. In some cases, what happens after the provider hasn't been paid, and I don't blame them, they, they provided the service, they then take these families who have paid in money to this health share and they throw them into collections mm-hmm. and say, I don't care who you paid the health share, they're not paying me, you have to pay me, you got the service. And so it's really a difficult scenario for a lot of these people. And it's interesting, and I can understand the appeal to them because with organizations like Solidarity and some of the other ones that are out there, um, I, I hear them marketed in, in Catholic media frequently, and then on conservative media, I hear some non-denominational um, ones out there as well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them point to the fact that, look, we're not going to fund certain things that we don't believe in, mm-hmm. you know, be it abortion or contraception mm-hmm. or whatever it may be. And that appeals to a lot of people. They don't want to give money yeah. to an organization that does that. But then when it turns into you and some of these stories in, in this in this uh, report published by The Pillar, you know, you have people that they gave birth to it, to their child and they have $15,000 in medical bills that are supposed to be paid that aren't being paid. Um what kind of regulation do these uh, health shares face? Is it, is it more at the state level, at the federal level, or is there any regulation at all? Well, um, there is some regulation, but it's a, it's a much more difficult. So, you know, they can't be fraudulent. They can't absolutely be sort of a fraudulent. It can't be a Ponzi scheme. It can't, you know, there are mm-hmm. definitely things that they have to be careful of not getting on the wrong way of. Um, and a lot of these entities sort of haven't run a follow of those because they say, oh, we're trying to, we'll get to it. We'll, you know, we'll pay eventually. You know, it's just, we haven't paid yet. Um, but it's not the same as sort of the regulation of insurance companies or for things like, you know, a similar thing would be regulation of banks. You know, what would you do if, if somebody said, hey, rather than giving your money to a bank, why don't you all send your money to me and I'll keep it and, you know, and then when you need some, I'll send it to you. And when you say, hey, I need some money, they go, well, I really don't have as much as I thought I had. It's a very similar thing. You know with a bank that they have to give you your money and it's backed by the federal government. With insurance companies, if that claim isn't getting paid and you're getting balanced billed and put in collection by the oncologist, You've got a lot of resources. You can go to your state department of insurance and file mm-hmm. a complaint. They can force the insurance company. They can actually take over the insurance company. They've got right. reserve requirements. It's like escrow that they can get. They can pay the claims for you. So you've got a lot more consumer protection through insurance companies because of how they're regulated than you do any of these, you know, um, any of these other entities. And it's it's like I said, it's really unfortunate because I think people go into it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And I understand it. They just don't fully understand that they could be fairly exposed. What's interesting uh, that, I, that I've that i found uh, reading through this report is that pursuant to the Affordable Care Act, Solidarity acknowledges that they must do an annual audit of their medical cost sharing, uh, and it has to be performed by an independent public accountant. Um, according to the pillar, they were not sent 
the the requests they or they were denied the request to see the audit for 2020 2021 and they cited irs delays um but then apparently they also told the pillar that the legally required audits have been unavailable to the public for years Mm -hmm. um so it seems like you not only have an instance where um perhaps more regulation on the industry is needed uh for these health shares but also that in this case, at least with solidarity, it seems that they aren't even obeying the regulation that is in place for them to disclose um, some of their financials. Yeah, and that, and that you bring up two good points. One is the amount of regulation that they're under, which is not much. And the second is who would the enforcement entity be? You know, you take about like, these audited financials. Um, insurance companies operating in a state have to do a financial, you know, audited financials with the state every year. And I can tell you, if you miss that deadline by a day, you start getting fined really heavily and they'll eventually pull your license. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you, they're always there. And guess what? They're publicly available. I mean, I could go to the, you know, the state department of insurance tomorrow. And if I pay for the copying cost, get a copy of, you know, the financial filing for blue cross in North Carolina for Cigna and United. And there's a lot of information there, including the salaries of their top 10 executives. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that's because it's a well-regulated entity that has enforcement already built in. They know what to do, how to do it. This A lot of this stuff is fairly new, and even states and the federal government don't quite know how to handle it or who's supposed to handle it. Well, speaking of uh, new regulation that's not being followed, you could throw in uh, all the QPA information that's supposed to be public uh, by now from uh, the No Surprises Act. Yeah, another new piece of legislation that nobody's yes. figured out yet. I Finally, I just want to ask, do you think health shares have a role to play in the current healthcare marketplace in the United States? Or do you think that they should really kind of go away and we stick to the to the current uh, employer based insurance that we already have? Um, I, I, I would like to see them play a role. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm more of a person who a likes options for individuals and likes individuals rights. And and I don't like it that if there's somebody with some deeply held religious beliefs or whatever, what other beliefs that say, I don't want my money going for X, that they shouldn't mm-hmm. have to, you know, um, we already pay taxes that get spent on areas. We don't like yep. it, but it, something like that, you know, I want those person people to have options. If this is the way to have them an option, that's great. I just think if you're going to have them in the marketplace, they have to be regulated like an insurance company. Um, similar to, you know, um, if you know that other professions have to have licensure, you know, you know, you, I can't operate as a non-licensed attorney. Right. Um, I'm going to have to have a license. I'm going to have to go before the bar, et cetera, and as well as other things. So I can't open up a restaurant without being, you know, surveyed by the health department and know mm-hmm. that I'm not making people sick. Um, so I'd love to have them have a place if they were regulated. Okay. Well, I think that's a good place to end our uh, first uh, our first program back from our summer break. And Ron, I want to thank you again for, for joining us this week. No problem. Thank you. And a final thought on the Flatlining podcast. As I mentioned in the Friday Pulse Check last week, of people who got health care last year, according to a new YouGov survey, researched the price of the care before they went to the doctor or to the hospital. And of those 36%, 60% of them checked with their insurance carrier first. Now, this makes sense because whoever your insurance is is going to be determining how much it costs for you to receive care. 
but it shows that there is a demand for price transparency. But if we're waiting on the Department of Health and Human Services to enforce the price transparency laws already in effect, well, I'm not holding my breath. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also subscribe to our emails at flatlining.net. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a great week.